0: good morning everybody <coughs> we have become somewhat accustomed now to uh, david as king king over the united tribes of israel in terms of this sermon series david has been king over all israel tribe, which we looked at three weeks ago in today's text <coughs> david extends his influence his reign over neighboring nations Today's text is about military campaigns. And it's about the fact that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And that might raise for us a number. And amongst these questions might be this one what's this got to do with me? Well, we'll have a think about that question and many others, but let's begin by looking at what David actually did. Well, you see, David is already the king of the nation of Israel, which in this that he is king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. He is king over all the land, more or less approximately all the land that God had intended to give his people Israel. An inheritance, a free gift, an acquisition, which in acquiring it, ten people groups, the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jezubites. So what David does today is to extend his rule beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. David is building an empire and moving towards becoming a superpower, certainly a regional superpower. And uh, with the text today we begin with a campaign to the west defeating the Philistines, subduing them, he redraws the national border so as to include include the town of uh, Methag uh, Amar. Otherwise, actually, uh, Philistia remains Philistia. It remains a separate nation. But now one that must give annual tribute to King David. Next he mounts a campaign against a traditional enemy to the east, Moab, and he defeats them. Uh, he doesn't occupy the land or annex it as part of Israel. David has no right to do that. Moab politically continues to be an independent nation. And this is right because Moab is not part of the land that God gave Israel. However, what David does is he ruins it as a military power, killing two-thirds of the fighting men and then exacting from the nation an annual tribute. That is to say, a tax so heavy that it amounts to a form of economic slavery precluding them from ever being rich enough to be a military threat ever again. David then deals with a northern threat, Hadadiza, king of Zobah. He was expanding his control out towards the Euphrates River, so David goes and campaigns against him, defeats him at battle, inflicting enormous casualties, and then destroys them as a military power, taking from him most, in fact not all, but most of his army. And again, David imposes on them tribute. Another northern neighbor, the Aramaeans of Damascus, come out in defense of Hadadiza, but again David defeats them, inflicting huge casualties, destroying them as a military power by building army bases on their territory and pressing them economically by imposing tribute. Another local king in that area, too, king of Hamath, offers self-imposed tribute and sends his son as a diplomat taking a submissive role and thereby coming under Davidic control without the pain of war. He figures, undoubtedly, kiss the son, lest he be angry with me. Um, The writing's on the wall. Here comes a more powerful king. So he takes a submissive role. He surrenders. He understands it's his only option. Um, Now, looking south, David, we hear, also defeated the Edomites. Verse 13, striking down 18,000 of them in the Valley of Salt. That's a, a valley which stretches south of the, the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea being the uh, lower of the, the two uh, inland uh, um, waters depicted on the slide. And what did he do? He, well, he built military bases and established them in Edom 2, verse 14. Other nations as well, not yet mentioned, such as the Ammonites in the east and the Amalekites down in the southwest, um, at the top of the Sinai Peninsula. They were subdued, that is, they were left as independent, self-ruling nations, but with a gutted military capacity and under economic oppression, having to offer tribute. West, east, north, south, the entire region is now under Davidic control. All of Israel's neighbors are eliminated as threats, and the surplus of their wealth is flowing into Jerusalem. David, from our perspective, is perhaps an out-of-control megalomaniac. He wants to rule the world. Somebody who wants to rule the world is in every James Bond film, and usually by the end of the film it hasn't turned out well for them. Furthermore, at least some of his measures, such as killing thirds of the Moabite prisoners of war, would have been, today that would be branded an atrocity, a war crime, a crime against humanity. Well, that then. David did. What are we to think? How are we to make sense of that? Well, actually, the narrator tells us what to think when he writes for us twice The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. At verse 6, and in the, that is in the middle, and again at verse 14, more or less at the end. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went and that might surprise us that might confuse us perhaps it might even horrify us so why did the lord give david victory wherever he went well that question can be answered in several ways firstly in david's own context david was motivated in all by his concern for the welfare of god's people israel that he should protect them from their enemies In David's context, David is being an an exceptionally good shepherd, protecting God's sheep from the enemies of God's sheep. And David knows how to be a good shepherd, moving swiftly to deal with any threat, no matter how frightening. In all of this, David is, is acting, we must remember, as a naturally and supernaturally. David is operating in one of his primary spheres of giftedness. All right. Um, David is operating in one of his primary spheres of giftedness um, when he's acting as a fighter, as a warrior. The Spirit comes upon people in power, in order that they might serve, that they might minister to the people of God. Um, And David, along with many others in the Old Testament, is a spirit-gifted fighter. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Continuing to think about David in his own context, historical and cultural, David's actions would have been considered measured, appropriate, and moderate. Uh, Coming back to Moab, the nation of Moab had long been a tormentor of Israel. Going back 450 years to the days when the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt and traveling through Moab in order to cross the Jordan and enter uh, into Israel, Moab attacked Israel and did very serious damage to them, treating them as mortal enemies when, in fact, they were not mortal enemies. They were refugees in transit. And in the days of the judges, too, Moab invaded Israel and oppressed them for 18 years. Um, And and the Lord told Moses, judgment is coming. Don't you forget, it's coming to to the Moabites. David's measure, although undoubtedly undoubtedly, uh, unacceptable by today's standards, it was measured and modest by the standards of his own day. He didn't kill everyone as he could have and as many others would have. And he didn't mutilate, torture, and enslave in the way that the Assyrians became famous for a few centuries later. So David, this is the first reason, David actually is a very good, good shepherd. A second reason why the Lord gave David victory wherever he went was that David handled success well. We, we read along the way about gold, shields, articles of silver and gold and bronze, great quantities of bronze, booty, plunder, spoil. And what did David do with all this wealth? Well, actually, we're told verses 11 and 12 tell us King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadiza, son of Rehob, king of Zobar. So now, actually, we know where the wealth went, it didn't go into David's pocket, rather it didn't, it didn't go into his personal treasury, rather it went into the tabernacle treasury. And from there, as far as I know, the wealth could only be used in one of two ways. Uh, firstly, it could be used to, to support worship, supporting the Levites and the priests, the sacrifices and offerings, the feasts and festivals, the musicians and prayers, the maintenance of furniture and plant. That's one of the ways the money could be used once it was in the tabernacle treasury. The other way that it could be used was in support of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. The the vulnerable, the outsider, those seeking refuge in the kingdom of God. That's the second way the money could be used, social welfare and disaster relief. Now, to be sure, later generations of kings raided the temple treasury for all kinds of political and military reasons, but we can be sure that that's not what David was doing. David, therefore, was giving the loot to God, not keeping it for himself. If he had kept it for himself, his motives for subduing the nations around him would have become compromised. So that's a second reason. David handled success well. A third reason why the Lord gave David victory wherever he went was that as David subdued the nations around Israel, David's cultural and ethical influence would have spread with his power. And that is good news for those nations. In fact, verse 15, referring to Israel, verse 15 reads, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. And although that is a straightforward translation of a straightforward text, I, I really kind of like the force and vigor that that has in, in Hebrew. Uh, and David was making justice and righteousness for all his people. In other words, to be sure, yes, David was doing what was just and right in every situation as things came up in a reactive way, but more than that, he was making justice and righteousness, taking the initiative to proactively eliminate injustice, uncover corruption, to make sure that the nation was fair and just, merciful and compassionate, in keeping with the laws of the Lord, the law of Moses. So so, so David was doing what was just and right, fair and good. Of course, if David had kept the loot, putting the gold and silver Back in his bank account rather than God's, he would have quickly found himself conflicted and compromised, I'm sure. But he didn't. He made justice and righteousness for God's people. And um, my point here, certainly that's a good thing for Israel. My point here is actually that's a good thing for the nations around Israel. It would have been a really good thing for Philistia, Moab, Aram, Ammon, Amalek, and Edom, because the priorities and policies of emperors influence the whole of their empire. And that's indisputable. Uh, Western Europe could never have been left to Nazi control, because although under the Nazis, France remained France, and Belgium remained Belgium, and so on and so forth, nevertheless, as Adolf Hitler's empire grew, Adolf Hitler's policies and priorities were implemented in those countries too. Undoubtedly, Moab was a better country to live in under Davidic influence. And Edom and Philistia and Aram. And this gets us to the real heart of why God gave David the victory wherever he went. The real reason is that all of this, the purpose of this, the point of this is to point to Jesus. You see, God's agenda for his Messiah is that his Messiah will rule the world. That agenda is not hidden. It is proclaimed loudly from the first chapter of the Bible to the last. God's agenda for his Messiah is that he will rule the world. This is seen in shadow form in the Old Testament, in physical, political, material ways. But the reality is found in Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, the true, real, eternal, spiritual reality. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, that is to say, the Messiah. He is Lord, that is to say, ruler of the world. That is the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. It would be a good time, therefore, to get our lives in alignment with that simple truth. That's the Christian gospel and the Christian life. Jesus is ruler of the world. Jesus is the good shepherd, the king who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the one who acts vigorously to save his sheep from their real enemies, from the devil, from sin, from death, from eternal condemnation. Jesus is the son who lives to serve the father and in doing so brings glory to the father. Jesus is the ruler who makes justice and righteousness for all of his people and in doing so is light of the world, making all places better through the seasoning influence of his people. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went so that we might understand about Jesus and what God is up to through his Messiah. Um, That means that there is a real, if perhaps, Indirect, but there is a real connection between the business that David is in and the business that we're in. We are to copy David whilst understanding that he is the shadow, Jesus is the reality. And with that in mind, there there are many, many ways in which this passage today could strengthen and encourage us to copy David as we follow Jesus. For example, I'm sure there's a sermon in how in Christ we too can be courageous in defeating the enemies of God's people. Uh, We can be courageous knowing that we have the authority and the power to defeat all of the enemies of God's people, the principalities and powers, the spiritual powers of darkness, but also the philosophies and traditions, the ideas and temptations that harm people because they are opposed to the character of God, opposed to the reign of Christ. There's a sermon in that. There's a sermon undoubtedly about in in copying David, following Jesus, in making justice and righteousness, in challenging unjust social structures, confronting corruption, in making poverty history. Out of all of these possibilities though, I'd just like to say a few words today about what we do with the articles of silver and gold and the great quantities of bronze that result from our ministries. You might suspect I'm about to preach a sermon on stewardship and tithes and offerings and money. I'm not. You might be relieved about that. I could, it would be fair enough. But I want to take this in another direction. Um, You see, David knew what to do with the gold. He gave the gold to God. He could have used it to glorify himself, but he gave it to God in order that God might be glorified through it. You see, gold is the shadow. Glory is the reality. Um, What do you do with glory? That's the question for today. What what do you do with glory? Um, I'm not interested in what you do with your gold. I'm interested in what you do with your glory. Um, Gold, on the one hand, is apparently incorruptible, but actually, well, that's because it doesn't rust, it doesn't tarnish. It's apparently incorruptible, but it does corrupt. Typically, the more of it we have, the more of it we want. It is addictive. So is glory. We receive glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving fairly routinely. And as we copy David and follow Jesus, we'll receive it, perhaps in large amounts. Glory is incorruptible, but it does corrupt. The more of it we receive, the more of it we want, I, I had to make sense of, of this phenomenon quickly as a new Christian because within a couple of years of my conversion back in the early 90s, I found myself in upfront Christian ministry, ministry that generated glory. Um, as an actor under the leadership of Tim and Nicky Bowles in a Christian performing arts company, we did plays and shows um, in high schools and in primary schools and in youth groups and things like that. And some of them were funny and some of them were actually quite good. And we performed in front of around 25,000 people a year. And at the end of them, we'd line up on stage, you know, as actors do, and there'd be lots of people applauding, and we'd take a bow, and sometimes the people were applauding loudly. And it felt good. It felt very good. But I instinctively knew that I was in danger. That feeling could become addictive. Um, As a new Christian... Uh, The text that I turned to, to understand this phenomenon and what I I should do with it, that as a new Christian, the text that I turned to was Star Wars, Episode (laughs) 4. In in Episode 4 of Star Wars, we learn that Han Solo never comes out of hyperspace in the Millennium Falcon without his deflector shields on full at the front. And that policy happens to save his life, and the lives of Obi Wan Kenobi and Chewie, and, and Luke, and also the lives of R2D2 and C3PO. If you have, if they have lives, I'm not sure if they do. We can talk about that at morning tea. But they come out of hyperspace, bang into a rubble field, the rubble field of of a recently destroyed planet. And um, if they hadn't had their deflector shields up full, it would have destroyed them. That was Hans' policy. So then when I went out onto stage after a performance, I prayerfully put my front glory deflector shields up on full as a decision of my will to give all of the glory to God in Jesus' name. That might sound childish and silly. Actually, it's childish and deadly serious. As human beings, our reason for existing is to give glory to God. God. If we get addicted to the glory, bad things happen. Sometimes in Christian ministry, a lot of glory comes my way. I can thank God for that. It it is God's pleasure to glorify his children. It is God's pleasure to glorify David, to glorify Jesus, to glorify you. Especially when you are operating in your sphere of giftedness. God delights in glorifying his children in, the, in their areas of giftedness as they serve the body of Christ. I, I can thank God for giving me glory, but I can't keep it. I, I must give it back up to him. I must give it back up to him. It's pleasurable to receive, but toxic to keep, and in fact actually pleasurable to give more pleasurable to give than to receive. Um, So then, whenever I receive glory or honor or thanks or praise, I pray in my head, as a decision of my will, I give all of the glory, all of the thanks, all of the honor, and all of the (laughs) praise to Jesus. And I can feel it leave. And if I've had a day where there's actually been a lot of glory, a huge amount of glory generated, then actually it takes a lot of prayer to get rid of it all. I have to pray that several times before it all goes. I can feel it leave. Curiously, I never want to pray that prayer. Actually, I want to hold on to the glory. I always want to hang on to the glory. But I can tell you with equal certainty that I always feel better for, for praying that prayer. And as the glory goes, I feel light. I feel content. Um, I feel at peace, and I'm really, really glad that all of the glory has gone to God. Um, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, and David dedicated to the Lord everything given to him, as he had done with all the silver and the gold and all the nations that uh, from all the nations he had subdued. This passage today shows us that David knew what to do with the gold, the shadow. And the Psalms show us that David knew what to do with the glory, the, the, the reality. So this is the point of the sermon today. Please learn. please learn, if you haven't already, please learn to give all of the glory to God. That's actually what you were made for. And it feels wonderful to do. And the Lord be with you all. Amen.